Today I'm continuing a series talking about blessings and miracles. That's not a very catchy title, and it really doesn't give you a great insight into what I'm talking about. I'm trying to describe the different ways of receiving from God. You can either receive a miracle from God, or you can operate under the blessing of God. And actually, a blessing is a better way to receive from God because it is the number one choice. It's the natural way that God set up for us to receive from Him. Miracles only take place when you're in a crisis situation. So if you're going to wait on a miracle, then you're going to have a crisis in your life. A blessing will actually prevent a crisis in your life. A blessing is always more abundant than a miracle is. And once a blessing is given, it can never be taken away. And I want to use the life of Balaam and his interaction with Balak, the king of Moab. And uh, Balak tried to hire Balaam to come curse the children of Israel. Now, before we even get into this story, let me just make this point. That one of the reasons I think that this teaching on blessings and miracles doesn't seem to excite some people is because it's just like they don't have any respect for a blessing. They don't understand uh, my excitement over talking about walking in the blessings of God because to them, you know, a blessing, it's just something that if a person blesses you and said something nice about you, well, then that's great, but who cares if they do or if they don't? We don't put that kind of an importance on words that have been spoken. And you can prove that by our society today, the way that we have, you know, litigation for everything. The word of a person just doesn't mean that much. But in the Bible culture and in the culture that God created, man has de-evolved from this situation to where today our word doesn't mean very much and a blessing or a curse, who cares? But in the original and at the root of this, the truth is that words are super important. It says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 and 22, right around there, it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. The scripture says that words are super, super important. Jesus said in the New Testament, Mark chapter 11, verse 23, that you shall have whatsoever you say. That's one of the ways that you release your faith. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain... Be thou removed, be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. So words are important. If you don't share that viewpoint, well then you're entitled to be wrong, but that is a wrong attitude. And I don't want to agree with you. I mean, you've got the freedom to make that choice and to have that attitude. But if I agreed with you, then both of us would be wrong. That wouldn't do anybody any good. Amen. So anyway, this shows the proper attitude towards words. Now, some of you are going to think that this isn't like superstitious, but look at this. It says in in Numbers chapter 22, it says, And Moab said unto the elders of Midian, Now shall this company lick up all that are round about us, as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. He sent messengers, therefore, unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt. Behold, they they cover the face of the earth, 
and they abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail, that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land. For I want that he whom thou blessed is blessed, and he whom thou cursed is cursed. Now get the picture of this. Here's the Moabites, the Midianites, all of these people who indwelt the land of Canaan, and they saw that the Israelites had quit wandering in the wilderness. Now they were moving into a position to where they were getting ready to attack and to conquer the land of Canaan. And when Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, saw this, he took an inventory, realized that there was no way he could conquer the Israelites on his own. So he decided to hire Balaam to come curse the Israelites because he says, if you curse them, they'll be cursed. And if you bless them, they'll be blessed. Now, again, I say that in today's society, in our enlightened society, we would sit here and say that this is nothing but superstition. You know, it's not going to affect the outcome of a battle if you bless people or if you curse them. That doesn't have anything to do with it. It's just a matter of who's got the most soldiers, who's got the mightiest weapons, who's got the advantage of the uh, surprise in the attack. And we would look at all physical, natural things. But people today would say that's just nothing but superstition to think that you could bless or curse a person. Well, you know what? Even in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 12, the scripture there says, bless and curse not. You know, this isn't just 4,000 years ago during this time that people were like that. Back during the time that the New Testament was written, uh, the writer there in Romans chapter 12, which was the Apostle Paul, said, Bless and curse not. You know, whether you realize it or not, words are important. And this whole uh, instance that is related right here puts an importance on words, specifically Words of favor spoken to bless a person and words of curses spoken to hurt a person. It puts a tremendous amount of weight on this and that's the reason for this entire story. I'm wanting you to know that words are more important than what we realize. And I'll just go out on the limb here. Uh, I know that some of you will really get upset with this, but uh, you know that's nothing new. But I'm telling you that they're more important than we realize in things such as the uh, uh, Iraqi war and other things that we do. You know, people just feel like that it's all free game to sit here and criticize and to say this and this is doomed and we speak all of these negative things. When if you look at facts, I'm not saying that there aren't adversities and problems that we're dealing with, but you know what? I don't think anybody could call the Iraqi war a failure. Now, there are still challenges. We haven't solved all of the what they call insurgency. I believe it's more accurate to call it terrorist attacks and rebellion towards it. And Anyway, I'm not trying to be political here, but I'm saying that how anybody could consider that war a failure is beyond me. Now, there are things that aren't resolved yet. There is still potential for that endeavor to fail. And you know one way that it could fail is for people to start cursing it and speaking against it. Our words affect a lot of things. And you get millions of people listening to the same misinformation and speaking negatively and doing things, and it sets spiritual forces in motion. It can affect the attitude of the troops that are over there. And if they ever lose heart and feel like that they're beginning to fight a losing battle, I guarantee it's going to affect the outcome. 
I know this firsthand because I was in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, I went over there. I was fairly naive. I was only uh, 20 years old, I think, when I went over there. And you know what? I was over there thinking that we were fighting communism and trying to accomplish some things, which I still believe that there was a righteous, just reason for being there. But as I was in Vietnam is when they had the Kent State riots and people began to riot and they were actually killed by their government and there became all these anti-war protesters. And all the information about that began to kind of filter back to us in Vietnam. And I saw the effect that it has upon people. I tell you what, I'm, I'm not trying to use this for an excuse to make a political statement, but I am trying to relate this to something that we can relate to. This isn't just superstition. Balak realized that, man, if he could get Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel, it would give him an edge. It would have power and impact. And whether you agree with that or not, I'm telling you that your words either speak life or death. They release death and life. And you need to make sure that the words you speak are proper words. And that's one of the things that we learn from this entire thing. Balaam was a man who had a reputation and he said, I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. And so Balaam was a man that understood the power of words. He understood that he had death and life in the power of his words. And Balaam actually was a minister of the Lord. Now, I know that some of you are going to disagree with that because there are so many criticisms of Balaam in the New Testament. And I'm going to turn to some of those and we are going to read them. Balaam turned out not to be a godly minister and did tremendous amount of damage to the Israelites. And because of that, the wrath of God came on Balaam too. He was eventually killed by the Israelites. But he started off being a godly minister, and I think that we're going to see that in this account right here in Numbers chapter 22. But Balaam is a man who had a relationship with God, who understood the power of words and the power of a blessing and the power of a curse. And because of this, he was sought out by an ungodly king who was trying to overthrow God's people, and he wanted Balaam to come and curse the people that God had already blessed. So he sent messengers unto Balaam, and um, here's Balaam's response to these messengers. In verse 8, it says, He said unto them, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak unto me. And the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. And God came unto Balaam and said, What man are these with thee? And Balaam said unto God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt, which cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse me them. Peradventure I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. And God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. Now I want to show you this, that Balaam, again, he gets a lot of criticism and rightly deserved because he did some terrible things. But at this time... Balaam was operating properly. Balaam told the messengers, I can't do anything unless God gives me the okay to do it. He waited, he prayed about it, God spoke to him. And look at how Balaam responded to this instruction from the Lord. In verse 13, it says, Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, Get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. 
Up to this point, Balaam hasn't done anything wrong. Balaam was asked to go curse the Israelites. He said, I'll inquire about it to God. God told him no. Balaam obeyed God and told the messengers to go back. God didn't give me the freedom to do it. So in verse 14, it says, The princes of Moab rose up, and they went unto Balak and said, Balaam refuseth to come with us. And Balak sent yet again princes more and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said unto him, Thus saith Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me. For I will promote thee unto very great honor, and will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. Now this was quite an offer by Balak. He was offering him wealth, position, influence, all kinds of things. And I do believe that Balaam was tempted by this, but even at that, Balaam still had enough of a commitment to the Lord that look at what he said right here in verse 18. Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. That's a perfect answer. You can't come up with a better answer than that. Up until this time, I believe that there was beginning to be a lust, a desire for all the reward that Balak was offering, but nonetheless he was still acting and saying and doing the right things. I mean, that's a perfect answer. If he gave me half of his kingdom, it doesn't matter. Nothing is going to move me to go beyond what God told me to do. In verse 19, he says, Now therefore I pray you, tarry you also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. Now I believe that this is when Balaam began to go astray. Up until this time, Balaam had refused them straight out the first time. The second time when they came with an increased offer, incentive package, he says, if Balaam offers me half of his kingdom, I'm still going to do only what God tells me to do. And he should have just dropped it right there. And he says, you know, God hasn't changed his mind. He shouldn't have pursued it. But I believe he really was tempted by these rewards. So he went back to the Lord and inquired of him again. And here's what the scripture says in verse 20. God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the man come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. Now here is the Lord. And as the story goes on, you have to jump ahead a little bit. But the Lord decided to take Balaam and instead of using him to curse the Israelites, he decided to have Balaam speak a blessing over them. Once again, showing even the Lord's importance that he placed on a blessing. He was going to do this to ensure and to bless and to enable his people to overcome the Moabites. So the Lord did say, if they rise and call you to go with them, then go with them, but only speak the word that I say unto thee. He put a warning in this for Balaam. He did not want Balaam cursing the Israelites. Now notice he said, if they rise to call you, go with them. But look at the next verse, verse 21. It says, Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. This doesn't relate that the princes of Moab came to him in the morning and put some more pressure or drew him in. It infers that Balaam just got up and told him, I can go. In other words, he saw a little bit of a change in the Lord's position as far as letting him go. He still, the Lord still hadn't changed any of his instructions about what he wanted Balaam to say. He did not want Balaam to curse these people. 
But Balaam took this slight change as a possibility that maybe he could do this. Maybe all of these rewards were within his reach. And so he just hurried up and went with them. And of course, the story goes on. I'm not going to go through and read all of this. But the story goes on that as Balaam was riding his ass to go with the servants of Balak, king of Moab, that the ass uh, turned and began to go in a different way and went down these rows of the orchard and Balaam got a uh, rod out and beat the ass. And then another time he got it back on the path and this time it tried to run off another way and uh, crushed his foot up against a wall and Balaam got mad. Finally, a third time this donkey just did something weird and it just collapsed right under him. And Balaam reached this rod back and he was beating his ass and the Lord opened up the mouth of this donkey and this donkey began to speak and say, I've been your faithful donkey ever since, you know, I was born. How could you do this to me? What have I ever done to you? And Balaam, you know, as unusual as it was for this donkey to speak unto him, Balaam just answered him right back. This would have been really interesting to understand completely what went on. But Balaam talked right back to this donkey and says, Man, I wished I had a, uh, something in my hand that I could kill you right now because you've done these things. I'd kill you if I could. And all of a sudden, the Lord opened up his eyes and Balaam saw that there had been an angel standing in the way. And that's the reason that his donkey had been doing all of these kind of things. And the angel spoke to Balaam and he says, if your donkey, if your ass hadn't have gone aside these three times, I would have already have killed you by now. And all of a sudden, Balaam realized that uh, he was in serious trouble. And he bowed down before this angel and he says, if it displeases you that I go with these messengers, then I'll turn around again. And the angel says, you can go, but you make sure you don't say anything but what God tells you to say. This was God placing a very obvious, strong warning in the path of Balaam that uh, he was treading on some thin ice here if he thought that God was going to allow him to curse the Israelites. He says, you better be sure that you only speak what God tells you to do. Now, this part of the story is familiar to most people. And when you talk about Balaam, most people believe that this right here is where Balaam missed it big time and what the New Testament scriptures rebuke him for. Now, Balaam was wrong in this instance. I believe that God knew what was in his heart. And so that's the reason that you had this angel come that would have killed him and things is because God knows us on a heart level. And he knew that Balaam was really being enticed and drawn into Balak's control. And he was, uh, you know, not wanting Balak to go and curse his people. Now, let me ask you this. Why did God even care whether Balak came and cursed his people? You know why? Because there was a power in the words of Balaam. Now, there's power in the words of everybody, but Balaam was a man who understood this so much so he had a reputation that whoever he blessed was blessed, whoever he cursed was cursed. And Balaam had power in his words. And God did not want that power coming against his people. You know, really, if you don't believe that Balaam had the ability to curse the children of Israel that would have affected their ability to enter into the promised land and to overcome these people. If you don't believe that that's even possible, that you know words don't carry any power like that, well, then this was a tremendous amount of effort for God to go through 
for something that really didn't matter one way or the other. The very fact that God took Balaam going and the words that he might speak this seriously show you that there is power in our words. Now, of course, today in our enlightened today, we know so much more and we're so much more sophisticated. We recognize all of that was just superstition. That's the way that most people look at it. But I tell you what, I believe the way the Bible presents it, I believe that there is power in the tongue. I believe that the words we speak are super important. And I believe that our world is affected more than we realize by all of this murmuring and complaining, the negativism. You could say, you could call it this, we wouldn't put this word on it today, but we are cursing things constantly. Many times you don't realize it, but you're hung by your own tongue. You're cursing your situation. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish that he had and lifted up his eyes and then blessed them. Did you know five loaves and two fish was nothing compared to the need? There was 5,000 men, not including the women and children. This is in Mark chapter 6. And yet Jesus took this little tiny pittance of food and blessed it. And because he spoke a blessing over it, it fed all of the people and he had more left over when he was through than he started with. You know what we do with our little tiny bit that we have? We curse it and say, you're nothing. You'll never work. This is not sufficient. I can't meet the needs. And we speak words of death out of our mouth. You know, I know some people think, well, boy, this is just silly. It doesn't matter what words I say. Words don't affect anything. That's not what the Bible teaches. Matter of fact, the Bible said, let me just read a passage to you out of uh, James chapter 3. This is in the New Testament. And in James chapter 3, it talks about the power of words. In verse 1, it says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. In other words, don't try and master everything. And then it gives you what to focus on. Focus on your words. Verse 2, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. He says if you can control your words, you can control your entire body. And let me just skip on down into verse 6 or verse 5. It says, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, and it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. Now this is a powerful statement. It says the tongue is like a little tiny spark that can set an entire forest on fire, and it's set on fire of hell. He says the tongue is like that among us, and it says it defiles your whole body. Many of us, the problems that we have, it's because of the words that you speak. And you know what? Today we discount words and don't really honor them. But this says that your words defile your whole body and set on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. I tell you, there is a lot of things happening in our world today that we attribute to just natural, physical reasons, but it's not. It's because of the words that people speak. And we aren't as blatant, as obvious with this as maybe sometimes in the past where there were witches 
and people like this trying to cast spells. But you know what? You don't have to do it with a pointed hat on and over some brooding pot, and you don't have to do it in all of these rituals. It doesn't matter the formulas that you use it in. You can curse people with your words. And the Scripture talks about that over in Romans chapter 12. It says, bless and curse not. It wouldn't tell you not to curse if you couldn't curse. And this isn't talking about just using bad language. It's talking about don't curse people. Parents curse their children all of the time. You're an you're a idiot. Nothing ever works. And you know what? Those words release death into people's lives and they affect that child more than you will ever realize. Anyway, I could get off and spend a lot of time on that, but I'm telling you that this example of Balaam being hired by Balak to go curse the children of Israel, that puts an importance upon words and the ability to bless and to curse that most people today just don't realize exist. But it's not the Bible that's wrong, it's our thinking today that's wrong. And just because you don't realize the importance of words doesn't mean that they still don't have importance. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, By your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Every idle word that men speak out of their mouth, they will give an account thereof in the day of judgment. Now you may not uh, put that importance on words, but God does. And so anyway, your words are important. So Balak hired Balaam to go curse the Israelites. And notice what happened in the 23rd chapter of the book of Numbers. It says that Balaam went with Balak and he told Balak, the king of Moab, to give him seven animals. He offered them upon seven different altars, sacrifices. And then it says um, in verse 3, it says, And Balaam said unto Balak, Stand by thy burnt offering, and I will go. Peradventure the Lord will come to meet me, and whatsoever he showeth me I will tell thee. And he went to a high place. And God met Balaam and said unto him, I have prepared seven altars, and I have offered upon every uh, altar a bullock and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return unto Balak, and thus shalt thou speak. And he returned unto him, and uh, Balak was standing by his offering that he had made, waiting on Balaam's response. And in verse 7, he took up this parable and said, Balak, the king of Moab, hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. In other words, he was saying that they aren't going to be conquered. They aren't going to be just absorbed into some other nation. They are dwelling as their own independent nation. In verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. Now, of course, this wasn't what Balak, the king of Moab, had hired Balaam to do. He intended for Balaam to curse the Israelites and instead he had spoken this tremendous blessing over them. So look at Balak's response. Balak said unto Balaam, What hast thou done unto me? I took thee to curse mine enemies and behold thou hast blessed them altogether. 
And he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak that which the Lord hath put in my mouth? And Balak said unto him, Come, I pray thee, with me unto another place, from whence thou mayest see them. Thou shalt see but the utmost part of them, and shalt not see them all, and curse me them from thence. In other words, what he's saying is, part of Balaam's blessing over the Israelites, he talked about that they are so numerous that they can't even be numbered. Let my end be like just a small portion of them. In other words, he was talking about how overwhelmed he was with their magnitude, the numbers of them. And so Balak thought that if he took them to another spot where he couldn't see the entire multitude of Israel, but instead, because of the lay of the land, he could only see just a small portion of the people, maybe he wouldn't be so impressed with how numerous they were and he would be able to conjure up a curse instead of a blessing. So Balak brought him to another place offered other sacrifices, and this time Balaam went back. And uh, in verse 16, this is Numbers chapter 23, verse 16, it says, And the Lord meant Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go again unto Balak and say thus. And when he came to him, behold, he stood by his burnt offering and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said unto him, What hath the Lord spoken? And he took up this parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Man, that is powerful. And one of the reasons for bringing this whole instance with Balaam up is to illustrate the importance of a blessing to show how people viewed it back in those days. But also look at this. Here is Balaam who is the person who is recognized throughout the not only uh, Moab but all of these nations as being a man in touch with God and his words were so powerful that if he spoke something positively over a person, they were blessed. If he spoke something negatively over a person, then they were cursed. He had a reputation. This was a man whose words counted and yet he could not turn God away from the favor that he had already spoken over this nation of Israel. And I really love this, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? You know, this is like the scripture over in, I believe it's Psalms chapter 89, verse 34, where the Lord says that the words that have gone forth out of my mouth are like a covenant, and that he will not break that covenant that has gone forth out of his lips. You know, when we say things, uh, sometimes we intend for our words to be taken seriously, but a tremendous amount of time we just say vain words that we aren't expecting anybody to hold us to them. But even if we say something and mean it, then if it turns out that that is going to be to our disadvantage, often you'll find people that just say, whoops, sorry, time's out, King's X, I didn't mean that, do over, You know what? We just retract our words and do things like this. But God says, My covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone forth out of my lips. When God says something, He never says anything in jest. He never says anything that He has to take back. 
When God says something, it's a covenant. It's a signed contract. And Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that God upholds all things through the word of His power. He was talking about all things in creation. Creation is literally held together by the integrity of God's word. If God was to ever break His word and have to say, whoops, King's X, I take that back, I didn't mean that, then the entire universe would self-destruct. The very fact that the world is still in existence is proof enough that God has never had to take back a single word that He's ever said. God's words are binding. And so this is just saying that same thing, that God is not a man that He should lie, neither the Son of Man that He should repent. If God says it, and this was talking specifically about a blessing over God's people, when God pronounced that, it's done. That's settled. End of story. There is not going to be a change in this. And um, in verse 20, this is Balaam speaking, and he says, Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Now you've got to remember that this is the man that in that part of the world was considered the most influential person that when he blessed anybody, they were blessed. When he cursed anybody, they were cursed. This man had power with God, great influence, supernatural ability flowing through him, and yet he couldn't change God on this issue. And you know, one of the great things about this whole passage is that it's showing us that once God's blessing is released in our life, it can't be reversed either. And the good news is, I'm going to be getting into this as we continue more into this series and enumerating what some of these blessings are, but God has placed blessings on your life. You are blessed to the max. If you are a born-again, spirit-filled Christian, you have a blessing, the divine favor of God spoken over you that ought to affect every area of your life, physically, financially, socially, emotionally. Every area of your life ought to start reflecting the abundant life that God has for you. He's spoken those blessings over you. And they cannot be reversed. It's not that this only works for some people. It actually is available to all born-again believers, but it's only manifest in some people's lives, not because God has retracted it. See, that's one of the things that this is teaching us, that once God has spoken a blessing over you, He never takes it back. This isn't the attitude that most Christians have. I don't know exactly where we got this, but somehow or another we think that God touches our life, but it'll only last for a brief period of time. And then the... uh, potency of that experience wastes away and it fades away and we got to go get a new touch from God and all of these kind of things. And I see Christians that have had major encounters with God and at one time have really seen the power of God operate in their life and yet something happened, they quit believing and they're back to a position just like they had never received from God and asking God to give them a fresh touch, a new touch. Oh God, move again as if God's the one that comes and goes. No, God has blessed us and He cannot repent. God has never changed. God has never taken the blessing back from us. Now, I'm not saying that that just automatically means that the blessing of God is going to come to pass in our life because no, we have to cooperate. We have to believe in order to receive this blessing. And I'll be explaining that more in, in a further teaching in this. But I want to get this point across that God, once He's blessed you, God never changes. 
And look at this. This is really powerful. It goes right along with this point. In verse 21, this is Balaam continuing to speak in prophecy. And it says, He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. Now this is an amazing statement. This is saying that God hasn't beheld iniquity in Jacob, talking about the children of Israel, the nation. Neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. Now, you know what? If you were to just really think about this, you could look at this and it could be very contradictory because I could turn you over to passages in Exodus chapter 32 where when God was up on Mount Sinai with Moses and communicating the Ten Commandments, God told Moses to get down quickly to his people because they've corrupted themselves. And Moses says, what do you mean they've corrupted themselves? And the Lord spoke about their idolatry, how they had made this molten calf. And God said, Moses, get out of my way and I'm going to destroy them. God was so angry at their sin. He was going to kill the entire nation, millions of people. And he told Moses, I'll make a brand new nation out of you. And yet this says that God hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither seen perverseness in Israel. Now, how do you reconcile these two statements? Because Exodus 32 shows he certainly did see iniquity and perverseness in that nation. This is saying he didn't, which is true. Well, the way I understand this is that when it's talking about the blessing of God, when the enemy of God's people was coming against them, God does not deal with us based on our performance. God's blessing on this nation wasn't because this was the most godly nation on the face of the earth. It wasn't because they had done everything correctly. It was because God started a covenant with Abraham and Abraham believed God and therefore God blessed Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then the 12 patriarchs and it filtered on down. And this nation was blessed by God because of a covenant, not because of their performance. So when he says, I haven't beheld their sins and iniquity, it didn't mean that he was ignorant of the fact that there was sin and iniquity in Israel because there certainly was and God had dealt with it in times past. But this is talking about as far as anybody trying to come against God's people and steal from them, take the blessing from them, God treated them just as if they were sinless, just as if there was no iniquity. And see, that's really our position in Christ. In Christ, our position is much stronger than the nation of Israel because they had a covenant, but our covenant is exceedingly better than what theirs was. And in the, the truth is that in our born-again spirit, we are completely brand new and we are sinless and we have been purged of all sin, past, present, and future tense. And God is a spirit, John four twenty four says. And God looks at us in the Spirit and deals with us based on who we are in the Spirit. And so therefore, God can truly say when He's looking at me and says, I haven't beheld iniquity or perverseness in Andrew or in you or whoever. Now some people will choke on that because you look on the outward appearance and you are seeing all of my mistakes and failures and you're saying, who does he think he is? But I'm not dealing with myself as just a mere human being. I've been born again and in my Spirit I'm a new man And God has placed a blessing on me and Satan cannot talk him out of it. He has blessed me and he will not reverse it. He is not dealing with me based on my performance. And the same thing is true of you.
Hallelujah. Boy, that's powerful. There is no intercession. Once God's blessing has started in your life, once that flow is going, Satan can't stop it. No person can intercede against it. Boy, that is powerful. And you need to know this because that's not the attitude that everybody has. And it goes on to say in verse 21, He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, What hath God wrought? Man, that is a powerful statement. And the reason that these are so important to what we're teaching on the on the blessings and miracles is to show you that once a blessing has been released and received by the person who's been blessed, once those two things happen, the blessing is given and then the blessing is received by faith. Once that happens, there is no enchantment that can stop that. God will never change. God will never take back that blessing. The blessing of God is permanent. It is non-changing. And Satan can't stop it. Nothing can overrule it. Now that's a simple truth. But I tell you, most people don't have that kind of a concept at all. You know what? I meet lots of Christians. Lots of Christians who've heard people say things and they've heard scripture and they've heard preachers say things like, well, God has blessed you. He's spoken over you that you have health and that you have this. And yet I meet lots of Christians that will come and say, well, I know that God has done this, but the devil is fighting against me or this person has done this. And they just believe that the power of God is so weak and so anemic that it doesn't take very much for the devil to overcome it. This is saying just exactly the opposite, that God's never going to change. And then it says that there is no enchantment against Jacob. Now again, we aren't talking about just Jacob or the Jewish nation. We're talking about us as the people of God. We could say that God has blessed us with health. He says that by my stripes you are healed. And he spoke those words of divine favor over us. And if we really understood what that meant, for God's word to have recorded these things, for God to have spoken this through people, have gone to this effort to record it in Scripture and release this spoken favor of God over us. If you were to mix that with faith and not waver from that... No enchantment could overcome it. There is no divination. There are no demons. All of the demons together, Satan himself, every demonic force on the face of the earth cannot overcome one promise of God's Word towards you if you will believe it. The problem is we just don't understand how powerful God's Word is. We don't understand that when God said these things, that man, it's life-giving. And if we would just receive it, there is enough life, enough anointing in the Word of God to produce the physical healing, the financial miracle, the emotional, social miracle that you need in your life. All of the Word of God contains that power and would release that blessing if you would just stand fast in your faith. But you know what? Many of us are actually more impressed are more occupied with Satan's power than we are with God's power. 
I know some of you may be disagreeing with this, but I, re, I minister to a lot of Christians, and there's a lot of Christians that honestly just, uh, they've elevated Satan to more of a position of a power. They're afraid of the curse. They're afraid of Satan's power. They're afraid that this person's going to do this to them. You know, I had um, R.W. Schambach one time. We have never been real close friends, but we've held some meetings together, and I tell you, I've really enjoyed this guy, and I'd... I just respect him in a lot of ways. And again, you know, there's a lot of difference probably in some of our doctrine, but nonetheless, he loves the Lord. And I've gotten a lot of good things out of R.W. Schambach. He's been a blessing to me. And I remember him telling a story about a woman that came to him and said, would you please pray for me that I could find a new place to live? And Schambach said, well, why do you want a new place to live? And this woman says, well, my neighbor is a witch. And she comes out late at night and sprinkles powder in front of my door and does these chants and does these things. And she says, because of that, I'm just experiencing all kinds of physical, emotional problems and my finances are hindered and I just need to move and find a new place. And um, Shambach said, no, I won't pray for you. And the woman was just shocked. Well, why wouldn't you do that? And he says, if anybody ought to move, it ought to be the witch says, you're the one with the power of God. You're acting like you don't have any power. He that's in you is greater than he that's in the world. So he whispered in her ear and says, I tell you what to do. So that woman went home. And that night she turned out her lights like she went to bed, but she was hiding inside her front door. And she waited until she heard this witch come out and sprinkle this powder on the floor. And then she started doing this chant and doing her curse in front of this lady's door. And what this woman did was just pull that door open, turn the light on, kick her shoes off and started dancing right in her stocking feet, right in the midst of this powder and praising God for the fact that he was greater than any curse that the devil could put against her. And uh, she came back and told Shambach that within the next 24 hours, that witch moved out of her apartment and was gone. Now, see, that's the right attitude. And that's an attitude of a person. See, Shambach had to help this woman to see it, but the point was that we're the ones who are blessed. Now, I've been saying all of these things to say that there is power in our words. And there is curses that people speak. And those things do exist. I'm not discounting that they do exist. But I'm just saying that they don't have power against you if you understand the power of a blessing. If you understand that the blessing is so much greater than the curse, then just like uh, Balaam here, you'll have to come back and say that God hath blessed and I cannot reverse it. That there is no enchantment. There is no divination. There is nothing that can undo the blessing of God. If you would look at things this way and take God's Word and find the blessings, the promises that He has spoken over us, how that by His stripes we're healed, how that whatever we set our hand unto will prosper, how that we're above only and not beneath, we're the head and not the tail, that we'll lend but we will not have to borrow. If you would just take all of these blessings that none of us would ever be barren, none of us would ever miscarry our young, that everything we do is blessed. And you just take these spoken favors of God. And if you really went to believing it and release the true power that's in the blessing of God through faith, 
then you know what? It wouldn't matter if Satan himself was your next door neighbor. You wouldn't have to worry about it because the blessing of God is that much stronger than anything the devil's got to offer. Man, that's powerful. If you could just gain this confidence that once God has blessed you, Satan, no force, nothing can come against this. I tell you what, it would make you embolden to stand against the devil and to stand against the people that Satan uses to try and intimidate you and to do things. If you just really understood how powerful the blessing, the favor of God in your life is, it would transform the way that you relate to people. It would do away with this fear that you have. You wouldn't let respect of persons, fear of people, dominate you and do many of the things that people allow in their their life. You know, I just have to give this illustration. This is a classic illustration of what I'm talking about, but uh, through a process of things, the Lord has shown me that I'm blessed, that God lives on the inside of me. Greater is He that's in me than he that's in the world. I know that Satan exists, and I know that he's a factor. I don't ignore him. I'm not ignorant of his devices. I don't just go out and submit myself to Satan thinking he's a non-factor because he is a factor. And if I give him opportunity in my life, he'll eat my lunch and pop the bag. So I, I know that I have to deal with Satan and demonic forces, and I know that they exist. But I also know that the blessing that God has placed on my life is so much greater that if I don't uh, operate in fear, if I, if I continue to stand in who I am, I have nothing to fear of the devil. And you know, there was an instance, I forget how many years ago this was, but uh, an associate of mine and I were both on a plane headed to uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And this was back in the time that they allowed smoking on the plane if you were in the smoking section. And this was a flight where uh, they just told you to get on and pick your own seats. There, there weren't seats assigned. And anyway, Philip, my associate, and I were some of the last people on the plane. We got the very last row of the airplane. And Philip was seated on the aisle. I was in the middle. And then there was this character over here next to the window that was, um, I mean, it, it was something else. He had on one of these floppy, uh, you know, French beret hats. He had on an army uh, field jacket that had holes burnt all through it where he had, you know, smoked and burnt holes in it. He had a long red beard. He was a red-headed guy, and he had this long beard down to his waist where it had been matted and gnarled together, and he had had to cut parts out of it, so it had holes in his beard. The guy was grody-looking. He had long fingernails that were, I don't know, an inch or more long, and they were green and yellow underneath. And the guy was just... You could tell he had an attitude about him. While we were still parked at the gate at the airport, he cussed out the uh, stewardess because she came and asked him to put out a cigarette. He was smoking while we were still parked at the gate. And she came back and told him to put it out, and he just cussed her out and let her have it. He smoked two cigarettes while we were parked at the gate. And he had this bad attitude in, in any way. So I started trying to make conversation with him. And I asked where he was from, and I asked a couple of things. And then finally I said, and what kind of work do you do? And uh, many of you aren't old enough to remember this, but the old Dobie Gillis show, they had Maynard G. Krebs on there. And every time somebody would say work around him, he'd go, work, 
Well, that's exactly what this guy did. I said, what kind of work do you do? <laughs> he goes, he goes, work. He says, why should I work? He says, it takes 10% unemployment to make this old capitalistic society function. He says, I'm just helping out the system. He says, I get my food out of trash cans, dipsy dumpsters and stuff. And he just started talking about all this junk. So anyway, I just started talking to him about the Lord. I said, well, you know, even God created Adam and Eve to work. He told them to keep the garden and to dress it. And there is a blessing on work. I quoted some scriptures. God will bless the work of your hands. And I said, it would, it would bless you. It would bless other people. Uh, you know, God has a purpose. And I was just talking about the Lord. This guy didn't want to hear it. And he was looking out the window. And as I just continued to talk about the Lord, eventually this guy just wheeled around like this. And I mean, he stuck his nose right up against my nose. And he says, you are speaking to a disciple of the Maharishi. And he gave out this long name that I later found out in the conversation was his name for the devil. He was a Satanist. And he was one of the high echelons and some kind of a Satan worship type of thing. And he just was there, I mean, with his nose right up against mine saying, you are speaking to a disciple of the devil is what the point was. And you know what? Let me ask you, if you were talking to a guy on an airplane and he was to scream this, I mean, he didn't say it politely. He screamed it. People rose in front of us, heard this. Now, if that was to happen, how would you respond? Well, I imagine there could be varying responses, but uh, most people would be intimidated by that. You'd try and appease it or stop the conversation or do something. And you know what? I might have done that. But when he did that, I mean, it's just like an anointing came on me. It's like that. I never even saw this show, but I've heard people talk about the Incredible Hulk, how something would happen and he'd just bust out of his clothes. And that's the way that I felt. I mean, it was like... This guy has challenged me by his God. And so he was sitting there staring at me. I mean, hatred coming out of his eyes. And I just turned right around and looked right at him, stuck my nose up against his nose. And I said, you are speaking to a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my God's bigger than your God. (laughs) And you should have seen what happened. He was sitting there with all this hate and intimidation and fire in his eyes. But when I stood up and proclaimed my God and that my God was bigger than his God, I mean that intimidation turned to total terror. This guy freaked out. He jumped up in his seat and put his back up against the window and, you know, was smashed up against the window and started barking like a dog and hissing at me. And doing all these things. And I mean, it scared the devil out of this guy. This guy was just freaking out. It was so funny because there was these two little Filipino or Asian type ladies that were in the seat in front of us. And you know, they're short. And so all of this commotion going on behind them, they turned around. And I remember seeing their eyes come up. (laughs) that seat like that. And when they saw this guy up in the seat like this and barking and doing these things, there was about six rows in front of us that just vacated. I don't know where they went. They were gone during the entire flight. This was an hour and something flight. 
And they were gone the whole time. The stewardesses never came back. Nobody did anything. Philip sitting next to me on the row was praying in tongues as fast and furious as he could go. He just knew we were going to have an exorcism right there in that plane. But anyway, the battle was on. And this guy, once I saw that I had him on the ropes, I just started in on him. And I said, boy, your God's a loser. Your God's a zero with the rim knocked off. He's nothing. I said, who would want to serve your God? You told me you live out of dipsy dumpsters. You eat trash for food. I said, you stink. You smell bad. Who would want to serve your God? And this guy just, I love my Satan. I die for my Satan. And I said, you already have. You're dead and don't know it. And I just poured it on this guy. And anyway, about halfway through the trip, he got up, went to the restroom. He did something in there. And when he came back, he was whistling and acting like nothing had ever happened. And he was just acting normal. And then he looked over at me and he says, beautiful day, isn't it? And I said, man, with Jesus, every day's a great day. And boom, there he was back up in the seat up against the wall again. And... Uh, He started saying, I can curse you and I could kill you. He says, I don't do these animal sacrifices. He says, I have cursed, I forget how many people, I think now it was six people or something. He says, I've cursed them, they've died, we've cut out their heart and offered human sacrifices. Now whether this guy had actually done it or not, I have no way of knowing, but he was claiming that and he was saying, I'll curse you and you'll be dead in 24 hours. And you know what I did? Based on this principle that we're talking about right here, that the children of Israel were blessed and that Balaam had been hired to curse them and he tried, but he says, God isn't a liar. He can't repent. It won't happen. There is no enchantment. There's no divination that can overcome the blessing of God. Based on this truth, I looked that guy right in the eye and I said, I dare you. I said, curse me right now. Go ahead and try it. I said, God will turn your curse into a blessing. And I quoted Proverbs chapter 26, verse 2, where it says, The curse causeless shall not come. I said, You curse me and it'll come back on yourself. And this guy just freaked out again. And uh, anyway, my point in telling that whole story is to say that, see, if you would understand what it means to have God speak over you that you're the head and not the tail, To say that, that releases divine favor. That is a blessing. And the blessing is greater than a curse. Nothing can stop that. Nothing can keep the blessing from God, of God, from operating in your life except you. If you stand your ground and understand the importance of a blessing, nothing, nothing can overcome the blessing. The blessing of God that's been spoken over you is one of the greatest things that have ever happened And that's what this Bible is full of. This Bible is full of the blessings of God. Now, it's also got curses in here. But the good news is, and let me read this verse to you because this is essential that you get this. But out of Galatians chapter 3, and let me find the exact verse here. In verse uh, 13, it says, "...Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law." being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, yes, this Bible is full of blessings and curses, but all of the curses of the Old Testament law 
have been placed upon Jesus so that now the curses for the New Testament believer are removed, but all of the blessings of the Old and the New Covenant are now still in effect. So the curses have been removed, the blessings are in effect, and you know what? If the only thing that keeps this from functioning fully in our lives is just our lack of faith in these principles. Most of us don't know about how powerful a blessing is. You know, when the Lord first started revealing these things to me, I remember one of the things that happened was that the church that I was attending at that time, they had a greeter there named Ralph Lloyd. And this guy was just a good friend of mine. He was just a great guy. He's a really happy guy. He was probably at the time, I think in his 60s. And he was just a real friendly guy and everybody liked Ralph. And anyway, there was a couple of weeks where Ralph wasn't at church. I got to inquiring about it and it turned out that he had had pneumonia, had been in the hospital and they'd released him from the hospital but he was still feeling so bad that he couldn't come to church and he was having trouble breathing and he had all this mucus in his lungs. And so I prayed about it some during the week and when I went to church on Sunday, he still wasn't there. So that was his third week gone. And I decided to go over and visit him. So I went over. He was living in a trailer home. I went and visited him and his wife and was talking to them and telling them about, you know, how I believe God wanted them to be well. And he just broke down and started crying. And he says, I know God wants me well. He says, I I can't understand why other people have been healed. And I've even prayed for other people. I've been healed myself, and yet this time it's just holding on. And he was really discouraged by it. And so taking the teaching that God had shown me about the power of a blessing, I took that same truth. And you know what I did? I just cut my hands over his chest. Now, I'm not saying you had to do it this way, but this is just the way I did it. It's what I felt like doing, and it's the way I released my faith. It worked. I cut my hands over his chest, and I put. I spoke to his chest. And I commanded that phlegm in his chest to come out of those lungs. I commanded those lungs to start working. You know what I did? I blessed them. I blessed it and I broke the curse. I said the blessing is stronger than the curse and I just released this into his chest. Did you know while I was speaking that over him and blessing him, he began to start coughing. He had to go and get, I think it's a paper towel or Kleenex or something, and he started coughing up all this phlegm. It didn't look very good. And... uh Anyway, he just got to coughing so badly that his wife said, you know, we're going to have to go. And so, uh, I mean, I was in their home. It was me that had to go. So I just said, well, uh, good to see you. I believe everything's working out. And I left. I saw her the next Sunday. And they said that within 10 minutes of me doing that, after I'd left their home, he had coughed up all of that stuff. His lungs were completely normal and he didn't have another problem. And I couldn't tell you exactly how long ago that's been, but it's been close to 20 years ago. And I know 15 years ago I saw him, and he's still doing good. Hadn't had any problems out of that. And the point that I'm making is that's the power of a blessing. See, this fits right in with a lot of the other things that I teach on speaking under your mountain out of Mark chapter 11, verse 23. It's not just the fact that you speak 
to the mountain, but it's the fact that you are speaking God's divine favor. You are speaking that by His stripes I am healed. He has meant all of my need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. He became poor so that I might be made rich. And you speak these blessings. Speak them out of your mouth and talk to these things. And when you do, the blessing is infinitely more powerful than the curse. And you get these results that we're talking about here. Let me go ahead. I need to finish this story about Balaam, but we've already talked about two times he offered sacrifices. He went and entreated God and asked God to give him permission to curse the Israelites so that he could do what Balak wanted him to do and therefore receive the reward, and God wouldn't do it. So finally, uh, look at this response of Balak. I really uh, like this. In verse 25, this is Numbers 23, 25. It says, And Balak said unto Balaam, Neither curse nor bless them at all. In other words, he brought Balaam to curse the Israelites. Instead, they'd gotten two blessings from him. He says, You know what? It'd be better if you just say nothing. And so, it says uh, that Balak, in verse 27, said unto Balaam, Come, I pray thee, I will bring thee unto another place. Peradventure it will please God that thou mayest curse me them from thence. And Balak brought Balaam unto the top of Peor that looked towards this other place I can't pronounce. And Balaam said unto Balak, Build me here seven altars and prepare me here seven bullocks and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bullock and a ram on every altar. And look at this in chapter 24, verse 1. It says, And when Balaam saw that it pleased God, pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not as at other times to seek for enchantments, but he set his face towards the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel abiding in his tents, according to their tribes. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up this parable and said... And then basically the whole 24th chapter is just Balaam speaking blessings over the nation of Israel. And he even talks about a Messiah coming. He calls him Shiloh and that he's going to rule the nations. And God spoke through this prophet Balaam and prophesied a prophecy that came to pass and uh, just tremendous results. And here's the end results of all of this. Down in the 24th uh, chapter, Balak, the man who had hired him to do this got so mad that he smote his hands together is what it says. In other words, I can just see this guy slapping his hands and saying, you know what, I have thought to promote you unto great riches and honor and position. And he says, now you'll be lucky if I don't kill you. Go home. And that was the end of the thing. Now that isn't the end of the story of Balaam, but that's going to be my next segment of teaching, and we're going to be showing you and illustrating one thing right here that I think it's one of the most significant things God has shown me about this whole thing, about how that nobody else, Satan, people, circumstances, nothing can stop the blessing of God. The only way the blessing of God can be stopped in your life is by you. If you don't believe, if you get into unbelief in this situation. But the point that I've been making is just to talk about the permanence of a blessing. Once once it starts, it's like you can't stop it. It's like, you know, a, a break in a dike, a crack in a dam. Once that thing weakens and once the water begins to start trickling out, it's just a matter of time until that entire thing's going to go and then this huge flood comes. And that's the way it is. Once God's blessing begins to start flowing towards you, 
It'll never stop unless you stop it. And I don't believe that if you've understood this properly, you ought to want to stop the blessing of God. Once God gives it, God is not a man that He should lie, neither the Son of Man that He should repent. If He blesses, He will not repent of that. God is not going to change. There is no enchantment. There's no divination that can come against it and stop it. Once that blessing has been given, it's there until you stop it by not believing and trusting in it. But if you can understand from God's standpoint that the blessing of God, once it's spoken, it never changes. I've used a number of things to illustrate that. We've talked about Balaam trying to curse the children of Israel and how that God would not bend. There was no way that he could be changed. We talked about Abraham. And Abraham was a man that God blessed. And that blessing in his life, it just continued to function even when Abraham didn't function properly. Now this is another major point, and I've alluded to this, but I just want to spend a moment or two on this because... Uh, the society, the Christian world that we live in today has wrongfully taught that the blessing of God, they may not even use that terminology, but that's what I'm talking about. The blessing of God is limited by your holiness. You have to live holy and to do all of these things in order to receive the blessings of God. You can definitely see that that's not true in Abraham's life. Abraham, in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis, received the blessing of God over him. And God said He would bless him, make His name great, and make him a blessing. And in him all nations of the earth would be blessed. God would bless whoever blessed him, curse whoever cursed him. And it was in that same chapter, Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham went down into Egypt because of a famine and lied about his wife being his wife. He was willing to let Pharaoh take uh, Sarah into his harem and commit adultery with Abraham's wife so that Abraham could save his own neck. Abraham was wrong, and yet God's blessing didn't quit functioning in his life. As a matter of fact, God appeared on Abraham's behalf, and instead of rebuking Abraham, rebuked Pharaoh, who actually was innocent. Matter of fact, when God challenged Pharaoh in this dream, the Lord spoke to him and he says, Lord, I did this in the innocence of my heart. Didn't he say that she's my sister? And the Lord responded by saying, I know you did it in innocency of your heart. That's the reason I've warned you. But instead of God rebuking Abraham, God rebuked Pharaoh and saved Sarah from being taken by Pharaoh and his harem. And it not only gave back Abraham his wife, but gave Abraham all of these riches and manservants, maidservants, cattle, camels, all of these kind of things. He came out of that deal better off than he was before, and he was 100% wrong. Now, is that saying that God approved of what he did? No. But God had made a covenant with him. God had placed a blessing upon him. God had said, I'm going to cause whatever you do to prosper. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you exceeding great. And whoever blesses you will be blessed. Whoever curses you will be cursed. That was the covenant that God made with Abraham. And you know what? That stresses the permanence of the blessing. Even though Abraham didn't cooperate with it all of the time and do everything right, God still blessed him. Abraham and Sarah got anxious and tried to help God bring this promise to pass about having a promised seed. And what happened? They went in to Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, and Abraham had sexual relationships with her. And she had a child named Ishmael. He was the father of all of the Arab countries. 
The whole Arab-Israeli conflict started through Abraham and Sarah's self-will and impatience. You know what? That was wrong. And God told him it was wrong. And uh, there's just no way to whitewash that. It was a mistake on their part. And yet, did you know that it didn't stop the blessing of God from working in Abraham's life? Abraham began to be blessed. Matter of fact, Abraham was so blessed that when finally the promise came that they were going to have the promised son named Isaac, uh, Abraham immediately interceded to God and asked that uh, Ishmael, the, the son that was born to Hagar, would still live before God. And God said, I will bless Ishmael for your sake. The blessing and the favor that God had put upon Abraham's life extended even towards this son that God never intended. I don't guess it was an illegitimate son in the sense that in those days they were allowed to have multiple wives and have children of uh, handmaidens, servants and things like that. But it certainly wasn't God's will for that union. And yet God went ahead and blessed him because of the favor that was on Abraham's life. And even though he wasn't the promised seed that God had been promising, he was still his seed. And God said, I'll bless your seed and make them great. So God blessed Ishmael for Abraham's sake. Here he was still reaping the benefits of the blessing even when he was out of God's will and not doing things God's way. And you know what? Abraham wasn't the quickest learner either because right before... The year before Isaac's birth, which was the promised seed, when Abraham was a hundred years old, the year before that birth, Abraham went down to Gerar and stayed in the country where Abimelech was the king because of another famine, and he did this same thing and lied about his wife and said, she's my sister. And he allowed Abimelech to to take uh, Sarah into his harem, and he was about to consummate the marriage when all of a sudden God spoke to Abimelech and showed him that he was cursed and that all of his wives had ceased bearing and that God wouldn't bless them anymore unless he returned Sarah back unto Abraham. And God had to tell Abimelech that Sarah was Abraham's wife. Abraham had made that same mistake about 20 years before. Here he is doing the exact same thing again, and yet it didn't stop the blessing of God. Now, my point for recounting all of this history is to challenge this belief system that even if God does have a blessing, and even if God does want me to prosper in all of these different areas, I just don't believe that I could ever receive it because I'm not worthy, and I haven't done this and this and this. You know, if you really study the life of Abraham, there is just no way that you could come up with that doctrine. The blessing of God on Abraham's life wasn't because of any holiness on his part. You know what caused the whole thing? It's listed over there in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. After God had made all of these covenants and spoken these things to Abraham, said, Abraham, if you can count the stars in the sky or count the grains of sand on the seashore, so shall your seed be. God promised him blessing, favor, not based on any conditions, if you will do this, if you will do this. Nope, there was no ifs, there was no buts, there was no conditions. It was an unconditional covenant. He says, I will bless you. I am going to do this. And it says in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It was imputed unto him is what it says over in Romans chapter 5. And so God saw Abraham's faith and trust 
in the promise that God had made to him. And it was because of that faith that God moved in blessing in Abraham's life. That's it. And I tell you, it's important that you understand that because, again, our church world today has cheapened all of the blessings of God by saying, oh, yes, God can do this. He might even want to do it, but it won't work for you because you don't deserve it. If you are going to receive the blessings of God, you've got to do this, this. And they have tied God's blessing to your performance. And the moment you do that, you are destroying any confidence that you could ever have that you will really function in the blessing of God. Abraham didn't get the blessings of God because of his performance. It was in spite of his performance. And it was simply because he believed what God had said. You know, you may not be the most righteous person around, but if you could go to the Word of God, find the promises, which are the blessings, the favor of God that has been spoken over you, and then put faith in it, release your faith, I tell you that these blessings would come in your life because of God's grace and not because of your holiness. Now, does this say that it's unimportant how we live? No, that's not what I'm saying because your faith is going to be affected by how you live. If you never study the Word of God, if you never go to church, if you never pray, if you don't associate with godly people who encourage you towards godly things, your faith is not going to be strong. You're going to be believing the wrong things. If all you do is listen to the bad news on television, if all you do is hang around people that hate God and that slander anybody and everybody and backbite, I guarantee you that's not conducive for your faith being strong and the joy of the Lord in your life. And if you make that a lifestyle, it's going to hinder your faith. But it's not your sin directly that is going to stop God from moving in your life. It's the fact that you are going to uh, tie these weights on you that are going to weight you down and keep you from running the race and keep your faith from working. That's the problem. So as much as you can, you should live holy. But if you have blown it, if you don't feel like you are perfect, recognize that God's blessing in your life isn't dependent upon you being perfect. It all comes to you through a Savior. And God has placed His blessings on you, not because you deserve it, but because you have put faith in a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've done that, then you need to get hold of these truths that I've been sharing and recognize that that blessing, once it's been spoken over you, it will never be taken back. God will never reverse it. There is nothing, no demon, no enchantment, nothing that can stop God's blessing in your life except your unbelief. Man, that is a powerful, powerful truth. And if you can get that attitude and start understanding this, I guarantee you, you'll see a difference in the way that you receive from God.